0: to the Annie E. Casey Foundation Podcast, a monthly conversation focusing on how all of us can work together to build a brighter future for kids, families, and communities. I'm Lisa Hamilton, Vice President of External Affairs at the Foundation. I'm delighted to be your host, and I'm so glad you've joined us for a hopefully inspiring and interesting conversation today. The Casey Foundation is focused on giving kids what they need, strong families, vibrant communities and financial stability. In these efforts, the foundation is fortunate to work with innovators who develop, test and implement solutions to help kids thrive. Each month, we'll bring you an in-depth conversation with one of these experts right here on the Casey Foundation Podcast. Currently, there's a debate about America's policy of mass incarceration and ways to find more effective and less costly approaches to public safety. While this is an important national conversation, the needs of the 5.1 million children whose parents are or were incarcerated are largely ignored. Also absent is the impact of mass incarceration on neighborhood stability. The Casey Foundation recently published a Kids Count policy report, recommending ways to support these kids, their caregivers, and affected communities. To discuss these solutions and issues, I'm joined today by Tanya Krupat, who's been working with incarcerated parents and their children for more than 16 years. Tanya currently is a program director at the Osborne Association, where she works to help law enforcement, criminal justice systems, and child-serving systems to better respond to the needs of children whose parents are involved in correctional systems. She also oversees a number of programs that work directly with young people. I'm delighted to share Tanya's insights and experience with all of you. Hi, Tanya. Welcome to Casey Podcast. Thank you so much, Lisa. I'm really happy to be here with you. So, Tanya, why don't you start by sharing how you came to the work that you do, focused on children with an incarcerated parent? I came to this work through one family, actually,
1: um, changed the course of my professional life. And I I was um, in graduate school in the University of Michigan for social work and public health. And... I'm including this because it's related to my journey is that I wanted to work in the area of teen sexuality. I wanted to be someone safe that kids could go to and talk about taboo subjects such as sex and sexuality. So I had a great supervisor. She had a social or public health degree and that's what I went to pursue. And and I was placed in an elementary school in Detroit on the East side of Detroit, which was incredibly impoverished and really at that time abandoned by the rest of the city. And, um, I was assigned to work with three siblings whose older brother had just been shot and killed in a drive-by shooting. And I was completely overwhelmed. Brand new social workers supposed to support these, this family um, at this traumatic moment and come to find out that their mother was incarcerated. They were living with their dad who was really struggling to provide and then had this you know traumatic loss on top of it. And the children had never been referred for any kind of support or services when their mom was arrested or incarcerated. And so I was really moved by that and like a good social worker, went back to my loss and bereavement class and tried to find something about um, the loss of a child, the loss of a parent to a child due to incarceration. I couldn't find anything. Um, Started searching through community resources. Where could I refer them? I couldn't find anything. Um, And so I just became fascinated by Um, The compelling nature of this incredibly challenging event in a child's life and yet the absence of it in resources and literature and and mention. So um, really since then I've been focusing on it and there there were people working on it though not many um, and those were really the pioneers
0: and champions who many of whom are still doing the work today. Well, you mentioned that this is largely an invisible issue. Given this country's problem with mass incarceration, could you share how many kids are affected by this issue? And why do you think we don't hear more about it? Yeah, absolutely. I think you included some um,
1: very compelling numbers in your introduction. On any given day, it's estimated that over 2 million children in the country have a parent who's incarcerated in jail or prison, and the numbers skyrocket if you include children who have ever in their lifetime experienced parental incarceration. Breaking that down a little further, the same racial disparity that we see across the criminal justice system plays out in in which children and who is most affected. So, one in nine African-American children has an incarcerated parent, one in 28 Latino children, and one in 57 white children. And these are, you know, really, um, we don't have good data because the invisibility runs so deep, and I think we don't hear more about this because... Of, of who we're incarcerating and because of who is affected, we have to look at issues of race and class. And also because um, those who are in the criminal justice system are so deeply criminalized that tragically their children get criminalized too and they don't get the attention they need and if um one example of what it might look like if um children were paid attention to is and that not all children unfortunately in this country are treated the same way on on the basis of race and class when there was a couple in the enron scandal and they were both being sentenced to do prison to serve time in prison and the the judge took into consideration that if he incarcerated both parents at the same time, those children would not have either parent at home. And so, it was a decision made in the courts that he would stagger the parent's sentences so that the children would at least have one parent home at all times. Now, that is (laughs) unheard of for the millions of children who are affected, but it shows that it's possible what the criminal justice system
0: might look like if we did consider children. And right now, we really, we don't. So earlier in your career, you spent some time working in a women's correctional facility, and I'm sure you had lots of opportunities to talk to those moms about their worries and their aspirations for their kids. What did you hear most often?
1: Yes, I did. My first job actually was in a state women's prison here in New York State, um, working with the mothers, and they were probably among my first teachers and really learning about um, the diversity of how this plays out. But I think I would hear poignantly and urgently, probably what any mom or dad would expect if you were separated from, from your children. They were worried about them. They are very limited in making phone calls. Their kids can't contact them. They would urgently you know i heard all kinds of concerns about kids who are dropping out or who had run away or just are they eating how are they doing and then even if they are safe missing those milestones you know not being there for the first steps or the birthdays or um you know, kind of small but huge things that we take for granted, um, seeing our children pass through these different stages. So there's a lot of pain and worry and tremendous guilt, you know, feeling just so bad that um, their children were in this situation because of a decision or choice that they had made.
0: So given uh, this situation, what are some of the biggest challenges that uh, children of incarcerated parents face? I think the you know the the challenges. It's interesting.
1: Anne Adelis Estrin is the director of the National Resource Center for Children and Families of the Incarcerated, and she says that children of incarcerated parents are like some children. They're like all children, like some children, and like no children. And I think you know what she means by this. It may be obvious, but the the biggest challenges children of incarcerated parents face are what any child who's separated from a parent would be facing. That is a a very traumatic separation for a child Um, and so you know they face the challenges that come with separation and loss however um, and so they share that with some children there are other children who are also separated from their parents and that could be due to military deployment or hospitalization or traveling for work and so those children also miss their parents and struggle with what's referred to as an ambiguous loss a parent who's physically not there but emotionally and psychologically present and and then their their challenges are really unique and that's really because of the stigma that accompanies this particular kind of loss making it incredibly difficult that with other losses there's often a flooding of social support and a a community recognition that this family is struggling or going through a hard time and with incarceration that's not the case in fact often children and families feel further isolated Uh, we've heard from lots of children and caregivers they had play dates canceled you know they were the whole family was kind of criminalized um, and left alone to struggle so I think you know the biggest challenge that children face is, is um, how people respond to the issue of incarceration, whereas Ann Alice Estrin says the meaning made of this makes it much harder. It's, it's very hard to reach out for help because people are so ashamed and don't, don't
0: want um, people outside the family to know. So what kind of supports do these children and their families need to be successful? How do we help them navigate this risky terrain? It's also important to really recognize how incredibly resilient children and families
1: are, and yet we don't want them to have to tap out their resilience left alone to struggle with this. So I think, you know, children and families on the very concrete side, they often need financial resources. Um, there's often, you know, a, a loss of financial support when a parent is incarcerated, and then also legal fees and the cost of visits, enormous um costs associated with it, not to mention a caregiver who uh, is a non-parent caregiver and wasn't Planning on being, you know, having three kids in their home or a grandparent caregiver. So the issue of subsidized guardianship for caregivers is a really important issue to talk about. And then beyond that, um, children benefit enormously from peer support from meeting other children who are in the same boat. It's often it's so isolating, and I think it's astounding given the numbers we talked about in the beginning that almost every child, maybe every child, who has an incarcerated parent at some point or maybe throughout most of their experience feels alone. It's astounding that they often have not met other children that they know of. They may be sitting next to each other in the same third grade class, but they don't know it. And so there's real missed opportunities to create those bonds. And at the Osborne Association, we offer peer support programs and the kind of um, relationships that we see formed between the children and the trust, the safety that they feel with one another, and the ability to be their whole selves because they can say, you know, oh, I went on a visit or... Um, that c o was really nice, or he was really mean, and they don't have to explain that c o. is a corrections officer or that they were visiting in a prison room., um, the ability just to kind of connect and feel comfortable is really important. And then children and families also need information and, and access to resources and support. Many times they would like to access mental health support um, with providers who were non-judgmental, but they are afraid of seeking that. And then many mental health professionals don't receive training in this particular issue also. So, um, building up the supports available. And then young people need opportunities to to thrive like any children do, um, and they really also have to, would benefit from more programs that um, that accept them for who they are and don't judge them by their parents' decisions. One of the main goals of our programs is actually to liberate the children and youth from feeling that their futures are limited by their parents. And we had a young woman in our program who wanted to be a language interpreter um, for the government. That was her dream when you asked her what she wanted to be. She had a very specific answer, and um, she came in one day really very sad and we asked her what was wrong and she said my teacher says I can never work for the government because my dad is incarcerated and so Mm -hmm. she was ready to give up her dream she felt like you know that seemed legitimate to her that you know there would be such discrimination on her because of her dad's decision. so we really don't want children um, to feel that their futures are limited at all
0: So there's obviously a a number of different stakeholders who play a role in providing these kinds of supports to kids. You've worked inside of a corrections and child welfare system, and now you're at a community-based organization. Um, What role do you think each of these play in supporting kids, and are there any other organizations or sectors that you think need to be involved that um, may be unlikely um, people to support uh, these uh, children?
1: I've worked inside of a women's prison and then spent seven years inside of New York City's child welfare system. And now I'm at the Osborne Association, a, a longstanding um, community organization um, serving individuals and their families in the criminal justice system. So I, th- I think there's a role for everybody, and I um, gained deep appreciation for you know the challenges and the mandates um, that corrections has, uh, that child welfare system has, and also the value of partnerships. So there's a huge role for corrections, law enforcement, and criminal justice agencies in looking at their policies and how they're affecting the children of those in their custody. I think a lot of the advocacy we do through the New York Initiative for Children of Incarcerated Parents is, is working in partnership with the systems that we're trying to change. We don't work adversarially. We like to collaborate and, and recognize that a lot of the harm being done to children is not intentional. It's, um, you know, these systems were not set up with relationships in mind. Um, They were set up to hold accountable or punish individuals not recognizing the ripple effects that um, individuals are part of families and part of communities. So I think there's a huge role for corrections. There's a, a huge role for child welfare and other government systems. When I was with ACS, the Administration for Children's Services in New York City, we were very fortunate to be able to create what we think is the nation's only program within a public child welfare system dedicated to children in foster care who have incarcerated parents and that program is called CHIP and it still exists today and that um, program was able to partner to bridge you know corrections has the parents in their custody and child welfare had the ch- children in theirs and so the two systems really sat down to say like how can we work together in the interest of children and families and out of that came a special visiting program but it was possible and I think at the end of the day they, you know, when we start from what would we want if we were separated from our children? Um, most people can't deny they would want access to their children, they would want their children well cared for. And then there's also huge roles of for the partnership between community based organizations and government working together. And it's really gonna take it's going to take all of us working together. I believe strongly in the it takes a village. Um, it's often, um, you know, it's equal overused phrase but it's the truth I think you asked about other stakeholders also I mean it's it's about family courts it's about pediatricians mental health providers even librarians we have a a children's book list there's actually quite a number of books that have been written specifically to support children of incarcerated parents Um, so I think there's a role really everybody has
0: to play Thanks. Um, At Osborne, you provide direct services to children and families, and you also advocate for policy change. You mentioned a little earlier about how important it is to have the right policies in place to support uh, young people. Uh, Can you talk a bit about the relationship between your direct service work and your advocacy?
1: We like to refer to our advocacy as practitioner-based advocacy. So we really draw on our expertise and knowledge that we gain from the children and families and individuals um, that we're serving, including incarcerated parents. And so there's direct dialogue constantly between our policy advocacy and our programs. And I think we, we learn the most about the kinds of policy changes that are needed from listening to children and families. And there's a document that was created by youth in San Francisco in 2005 called the Children of Incarcerated Parent Bill of Rights. And that was really young people calling for changes in the criminal justice system, but in terms of the rights that they have and that's eight eight rights and it starts with i have the right to be kept safe and informed at the time my parents arrest and includes the right to have access to their parent the right not to be judged blamed and labeled because of their parents incarceration um, the right to be well cared for during their parents incarceration and the right to a lifelong relationship with their parents and i think listening to children's voices is an incredibly powerful um, advocacy tool and one example of um a victory that we had here in New York State was actually kind of unintentional. We brought one of our youth programs to meet with Senator Montgomery, a Brooklyn senator who's very dedicated to youth. And she was just having a conversation around a table with three young people, all of whom had currently incarcerated parents. And Ashley started to share how, how hard it was to visit her dad and how random the rules seemed when she got there. One day she would be allowed to visit to bring something and the other day not. And it just seemed um, like there was not a way to actually know what the rules were and Senator Montgomery listened and then created a bill that she called Ashley's Law <laughs> that would require the state prison system to post publicly what their rules are for visitors and that um uh, bill was actually signed into law a year ago and so Ashley just by sharing her story actually changed things um, for all, all visitors actually to New York State prisons and um, our state prison system now posts the rules per each of the prisons and also makes a phone number available so I think that was um, that's one example of what can happen also when children lead the way and kind of tell us what they need.
0: That's fantastic. You know, a lot of our conversation has been about the impact of mass incarceration on children and families, but they live in communities that provide the sorts of resources and supports they need. What's your sense of what we need to do to help communities um, become more stable places for uh, the children who lived in um, mass
1: incarceration, definitely weakens communities. And there was some very important research done by Todd Clear and Dina Rose several years ago that talked about a tipping point that a certain amount of incarceration is is research is related to public safety but after a certain tipping point when it hits mass incarceration and high incarceration rates communities are really weakened and actually made less safe Um, and if you think about it it makes perfect sense if you're removing so many people from a community and there's so much destabilization um, that it is really important to look at investing in communities and that incarceration usually is often preceded by cumulative traumas, poverty, unemployment, lack of access to quality schools, safe playgrounds. It doesn't come out of nowhere. And so if communities had these resources, which every community deserves to have the good schools, safe playgrounds, healthy food, libraries and you know, they would do better. There's also something if we tend to um spend money kind of at the back end and there was research done Uh, here in New York City that looked at million-dollar blocks that actually communities with high incarceration rates, there were actual blocks where millions and millions of dollars were spent to incarcerate and um, provide community supervision. And the you know, the authors had to question, what if that same amount of money had been invested in the front end? If those communities had that money, they would be, you know, rich and and they would have parks and schools and all these things I just mentioned. And so I think it's, that led to a movement called justice reinvestment, which is very important to look at that we really need to support and heal and provide opportunities within communities and to involve the communities in, in this, there was a very a recent report that came out called who pays the hidden cost of incarceration on families. And this report is incredibly important, not only for its findings, but really for the process of how they did the research. It was a national report that went to different communities, um, taught and trained community members to be the researchers, to do research on themselves about what they need. And it's um, it goes with the saying, nothing about us without us, that communities generally know what they need, but are often left out of uh, the, the discussions about what they need.
0: Well, Tanya, you have provided so much information. If people wanted to learn more about this issue, where would you direct them? great question i think i would first direct
1: them to a fantastic website called echoes of incarceration which is young people who've experienced a parent's incarceration making films about what this is like for them and they have at least three or four movies that you can watch on their website and several more coming uh these are incredibly talented young people who are debunking the myth that um Children with incarcerated parents are more likely to be incarcerated themselves, and really share a tremendous amount of insight with us about what this experience is. The Sesame Street also came out with a really wonderful toolkit for families and children about um, the experience of having an incarcerated parent. There's a DVD and coloring books, and um, they really want to help caregivers have these really tough, um, difficult conversations with children. Children will ask questions, and they need an age. Of appropriate truth, but it can often be hard to answer these questions. So Sesame Street is a great, great place to go. And then I mentioned earlier, the National Resource Center for Children and Families of the Incarcerated um, has a lot of fact sheets and toolkits, and as we do also on the Osborne Association website.
0: Well, Tanya Kruppett, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And I want to thank our listeners for joining as well. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, rate our podcast on iTunes to help others find us. To learn more about our podcast and for show notes, visit our website, aecf.org, and follow the Casey Foundation on Twitter at AECF News. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.